Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Without further ado, here's our conversation on getting medieval in the bedroom. Thanks, Eleanor, for joining us on the podcast to talk about medieval sexuality. This is so exciting for me. I hope it is for you, too. (laughs) It is. I'm a big fan. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm so happy to have you. So we're going to start, I think, by talking about why it can be sort of difficult and challenging to talk about sexuality when you're talking about a different culture this far in the past. So what are some of the challenges of studying sexuality so long ago? I mean, I guess one of the big problems that we have is society's problem with sex generally, right? So it's still, even though we're pushing the boundaries out a little bit more, you know, there's things like, hey, you know, this podcast has to be flagged, not safe for work, because it's not okay to just talk about sexuality. Um, And if that's true for us now, right, in our relatively open society, it's even more true in the medieval period when the church has a lot more influence in people's lives. And fundamentally, people still really believe a lot of the religious things about sex. So a lot of the time when you're digging through and you want to find out about someone's sex life, it's really, really hard, right? Because people aren't necessarily like leaving a journal that says, I did this with this person. Here's <laughs> what's happening. Um, historians of the future are going to be really, really excited about like, all of the blogs if, you know, we manage to make them stick because there's a lot more of that around today. But a lot of what I'm looking at is people saying, no, 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 that's very naughty. That's bad. You don't want to have that sex. And that's the kind of thing that we're working with is sort of like negative things to try try to see a really clear view of what people are actually doing in terms of sexual practice. Yeah, exactly. Because in in some ways, it's like looking at law where you have to look at what people say not to do in order to figure out what people are actually doing. Exactly. And then it can even be tricky on top of that, because we'll have stuff like, for example, medieval penitentials, which, um, you know, for the uninitiated, that's kind of like um, a handbook that priests would have where they would use that when people are coming to give confession. So, you know, you'll maybe try to nudge people towards confessing particular things. Or if you they hear a particular thing, go, oh, okay, here's um, this sin. That means, you know, 10 Hail Marys, this many days of fasting, that kind of a thing. And we don't know necessarily, um, when we read these penitentials, if these are actually responding to real sins that priests hear, or if this is like some guy who's not allowed to have sex, who's kind of like massively horny, like writing about what he (laughs) thinks people are doing. So it's really kind of a tricky source because it's like, all right, well, is this happening? Or is this, you know, the kind of things that sort of repressed people are thinking are happening? So in general, and it's hard to talk in generalities, but if we can, in general, what is the church's stand on sex back in the Middle Ages? Okay, so the church's stand on sex is almost exactly what it is now, which is that sex is for making more humans, right? Uh, So the only time you should really be having sex is uh, if you are intending to bring another person into this world. So ideally, really, um, if we're being real about it, you just shouldn't be having sex at all. The best thing you could possibly do is be a monk or a nun or a priest or something like that and devote yourself to never having sex ever. Failing that, 
there's the kind of a uh, very famous phrase that we use, which is it's better to marry than to burn. So if you're like, oh man, I'm really going to definitely have to have sex. The first thing you need to do is get yourself married. It's got to be, you know, like all religious and above board. And then you can have sex if you are specifically intending to procreate. And so, you know, for you and I, we might go, oh, okay, well, that sounds like pretty good and, you know, maybe pretty reasonable. The thing is, there's a lot of prescriptions on top of that as well. It's not like, oh, well, as long as you're hoping at the end of the day to have a kid go nuts with anything within those parameters. The idea is to kind of like get in, get out as fast as possible. <laughs> mm, a little on the nose there. Uh, and basically, the only thing that's really acceptable to be doing is penis and vagina sex. And like to the point where it's like, okay, no, what we would call, some people would call, you know, quote, unquote, foreplay, which I try to say is, you know, other kinds of sex. So like manual sex, oral sex, anal sex, all that is a big no, because that can't get anybody pregnant. So you shouldn't be doing that. And it's even down to stuff like there shouldn't be any, quote unquote, lascivious kissing. Like, don't try to turn each other on too much. Like, don't try to have all that much fun. Just like really try to procreate and get out of there as fast as you can. But there's also kind of like a different tack on that as well. Because for medieval people, they believed that for conception to happen, women needed to orgasm as well as men. Because the idea here is that, all right, well, if the, you know, quote unquote, seed that men have is released when they orgasm, which, you know, sidebar, men can orgasm without ejaculating um, and they can not orgasm and ejaculate just to make that clear. But, you know, medieval people were being, you know, kind of basic about it. It's chill. Uh, <laughs> but the idea is, OK, so that has to happen. Right. So for a woman to release her seed, she's going to need to orgasm as well. So. Even though we're kind of like, oh, man, this is really kind of like pleasure phobic. This isn't really something that you want to see. There is a little bit more of an emphasis on a necessity for women's pleasure in here as well, which is interesting, I think. Yes. And when we had Ruth Mazokaris on the podcast talking about marriage, uh, we were talking about how the conjugal debt goes both ways. So there is mm -hmm. an expectation that the women have to be having sex as well. They should be enjoying it a little not a a little, just a little. And I mean, another really interesting thing is for medieval people, you know, women are the ones who are actually really up for it, uh, which is, uh, it, you know, a complete inversion of the things that we tend to think now. We tend to think, oh, you know, well, women, they're not that interested in sex. You got to kind of trick them into having sex. You know, this is you, the origin of every pickup artist in the world and all of that. But for medieval people, women are really, really into sex. And you've got to kind of like control them and like, keep that <laughs> under wraps. It's like, oh, no, they're asking for sex all the time. We better marry them off. And then they can have this little bit of sex. They can have this little penis and vagina moment. And that'll be okay. So it's weird because some things are total inversions of what we think. And some things are kind of track really well. Yeah, exactly. And when you're talking about pregnancy occurring because women have orgasmed, this is still one of those things that's really kind of fraught and still around right now, you know, when people are talking about rape cases still. And it's it's kind of funny how some of the most repressive things we've kept around and some of the most freeing things we haven't. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true because, you know, um, it's the same way that we will think, for example, about um, rape and sexual assault now where this could kind of be used against women if they decide to bring a rape case in the medieval period. You know, if you get pregnant, then people will go, ah, but you orgasm, didn't you? That's why you're pregnant. So was it really rape? Yeah. And exactly. that's uh, crunchy. <laughs> so, you know, it's not all fun and games. It, it has to be said, you know. Yes, yes. And it is an important part, which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. It's an important part of society, not only because of the marital element, but because it is a serious driver of human behavior. <laughs> so. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and this is the thing, right? So we, we've got the marital element and you can talk about what the church wants you to do until the cows come home. And that's really cute. But that's not what people were doing. 
you know. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, again, of course, penitentials are a tricky source, as I say. But that shows us there's, there's actually this wide array of sexual behavior happening completely outside of the bounds of marriage or, you know, even the sexual behavior that's not acceptable within the bounds of marriage happening. Because you can still, you know, get told that you're very naughty by your priest if you are deciding to have, for example, oral sex with your husband. That still gets you in trouble. Not as much trouble, but it's trouble nonetheless. Yeah, and there are even certain days on which you are not supposed to have sex as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, like Sundays are right out of the question, you know, um, and as are like high holy days. And we don't, well, the, the phrase isn't exactly high holy days. Sorry to steal that from our Jewish brethren. Uh, but um, holy days of obligation, sort of so, you know, like uh, the Immaculate Conception or Michaelmas, all the really big celebrations, you're not supposed to be having sex. Um, no sex during any of Lent. Uh, no sex during any of Advent no sex on Christmas, you know, the list goes on. And so when we think about that, obviously, it's clear that people aren't following these rules, because if that's true, and no one can have sex during Advent, then no one in the medieval period would have ever been born in September. <laughs> and like, that's just not the case, is it? So, you know, there's plenty of things going on that are outside of what the church's kind of idealized conception of what sex should be. It's just that you, you got to make the connections on your own, you know? Right. And the the connections that we would make and the connections that medieval people would make are confusing beyond all these rules. I mean, you're supposed to go and confess that you've had these thoughts or you've done these things. But then at the same time, medieval culture was pretty bawdy and that you have all sorts of examples of sex being funny um, and something that you should be laughing at, participating in, all that stuff at the same time as you're supposed to not be thinking about it at all. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things, I, I guess we still have this kind of like a uh, societal expectation now where, you know, we do tend to think of sex as something kind of very naughty, but also we use it to sell like hamburgers and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of the same thing. And medieval people loved it, you know, um, we've got all these wonderful examples of medieval art. So for example, um, a lot of people I think would have seen uh, various phallus trees. Um, you know, we've got some really great examples of like, you know, nuns picking penises off of trees or sometimes even in churches and things like this, you'll have whole frescoes and there'll be this big tree and there's just all of these erect dicks hanging from it, you know, and uh, that's a big part of the medieval imagination. And I mean, part of it, I think, is also that they've got kind of a less of a concept of privacy than we do. You know, like they're kind of all, most people, if you think most people are peasants, so like 99% of people are peasants and you're all kind of like living in this house and do you have your own room? Not necessarily. So a lot of the time you're kind of like maybe having sex around other people if you're not particularly rich and everyone just sort of gets on with it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and so there's also a lot of like prohibitions and stories, for example, because when people are like looking for privacy, there's all these like apocryphal stories about couples who've gone into a church to have sex because it's like, oh, it's open and it's dry and nobody's there. Okay, so <laughs> they go into a church and they have sex um, and then they get stuck together. Because, you know, those saints that the relic is in the church, it's like, oh, that's very naughty. And they stick them together. And then kind of like part of their penance is they'll have to go on procession from the whole town to another set of relics, make confession. And everyone just kind of stands and like points and laughs at these people who are stuck together from sex. And like that is just a like champagne humor as far as they're concerned. Like that's as good as it gets. <laughs> and obviously that might not be happening, but they like stories about that. So even though, you know, it's probably unlikely that a saint cursed some people having sex in the church and they got stuck together, the old <laughs> people are like, I love this. Let's write this down and tell the story. And that's what's important. And that tells us a lot about their sense of humor, you know? 
I love that you say that it's unlikely. <laughs> I mean, you know, never say never. I'm I'm open to a wide range of possibilities if we consider that there's an infinite number of universes that's happened somewhere. That, so that is so true. And that is a great way to come at your academic work, I think. <laughs> oh, I try. I try. I do have to ask about these phallus trees. What is up with the phallus trees? Do you think that they're just to be funny? Or is there a reason that they are on the tree? Well, I mean I think that in the first place, I think that they're definitely meant to be funny. And congratulations, medieval people, you got me. That's hilarious. Um, but I also think that there is a kind of like a real link between kind of like fertility here, right? So it's like, you know, dicks are kind of like fruits and they're on these trees. And this is like a kind of idea of fecundity. But there's also within this, you know, a lot of the time when you see phallus trees, there will be kind of like women picking from them. And it's a little bit kind of like a snarky remark about how much women like sex and how they're kind of like, oh, they're picking the penises that they want. And it's a little bit about how women kind of conduct their own business, a little bit about fertility, a little bit of a fun joke. You know, it's it's all happening there. And God bless them because it's a multi-layered lasagna of wonderful <laughs> dick jokes and I love it it's amazing and you see this kind of stuff like you say in churches or there's nuns picking stuff off a tree but also pilgrims badges and other things like that they are so well you would not be able to wear them in public right now um, without no. getting some sort of comment but they're <laughs> pilgrims badges and they're they're very very racy Oh, yeah, extremely. And, you know, one of, I think this is one of these things that's really interesting about medieval society versus ours, because, you know, our society is kind of super chill about penises, right? So, you know, the penis tree is taken off and it's wildly successful. Everybody loves the penis tree and no shade. I do too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like how everywhere you'll see like a crude graffiti of just like a dick and balls, which mm -hmm. is, you know, congratulations. I love that graffiti. 13-year-old boys, keep it up. But... <laughs> What medieval people also liked was to kind of put vulvas on things. Mm. Um, we see it less in like marginalia of manuscripts and that sort of thing, but we definitely see it with pilgrim badges. So what I always say is like what we have to think about is that for a lot of people, pilgrimage is kind of like the equivalent of like spring break for us now. <laughs> so people are like, Ooh, pilgrimage, yeah, you know, because... I mean, considering you grow up in some, you know, most people are living in some tiny little town of like 50 people, 60 people. Um, even if you're from a city, like what's the biggest you can dream? Like 13,000 people in a city, right? Mm -hmm. You go on pilgrimage, you meet a bunch of people, you're not related to any of them. Like that's pretty sexy, right? Just like <laughs> just newness and new opportunities. Um, you're probably under plenary indulgence or you're going to receive tons of indulgences when you get to your destination. So it's like, well, you may as well sin a little bit. So for a lot of people going on pilgrimage, yeah, it's definitely like a holy situation. I'm not trying to take that away from it. It's not like entirely cynical, but you might have a bunch of sex. So people are out here. They'll make these wonderful pewter badges. And it, especially this is common in the lowlands. A lot of them survived us. And there'll be all kinds of things like my very, very favorite. If you go Google this, everyone, which you should. My very favorite is there's this vulva that's wearing a crown and it's being carried on a litter by three penises that have arms and legs and little tails. And that's my absolute favorite. But um, we've got like a vulvas uh, riding horses as archers. We got vulvas ever. And it's just like vulva central. And not only is this completely acceptable, it's like, oh, well, I'm busy being holy. Better put my vulva badge on, you know. So there's a lot more room for this kind of like expression of frank sexuality, actually, than there is now when we're still kind of struggling to even deal with the fact that vaginas exist in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, and we definitely don't accessorize them. I mean, I love these pilgrim badges with hats. <laughs> for 
I know. Like, I'm really kind of, I, there are some people online who make replicas, and I've kind of stared at them for a very long time and, and considering it because they're absolutely fabulous. It's true. <laughs> and something that everybody needs to wear to class. Um, oh, yeah. Sure. I, I just really am always looking for new ways to alienate my students. So, you know, that's <laughs> right up there. Yeah. Great. Well, it's not weird enough to be talking about this in class anyway, right? <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, I love, you know, I always love those those days when we're going more deeply into sexuality and they all just kind of start staring at their desks. That's like, that's how I know I've done well. <laughs> just this slow rise of color from the neck going up. <laughs> well, I want to get into um, a little bit about this, this whole idea about women being the ones who are lustier at this time. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. in terms of widows, especially, it's like women de oh, yeah. don't necessarily think about sex until they are married. And then once they are, it's like, boom. You cannot mm -hmm. control them. Oh, yeah. And um, so widows are a really interesting one because they, in particular, inhabit this place in the imagination where it's like, these ladies are uncontrollable, right? <laughs> um, because so it's like, it's really easy to kind of control women and control their sexuality if you're doing it within the bounds of marriage, right? And women, to be clear, women are always working all the time. They've always worked all the time. Women in the medieval period are working 24-7. We're talking about like spinning, making beer, you know, helping with the flocks, they're doing everything that there is. And they're probably also helping their husband in whatever trade he is doing. If he's doing a trade, they probably do it too. And they probably keep his books. Now, say that husband dies. Suddenly, you've got this woman who knows about sex, knows that it's really, really fun. And she's got money now. <laughs> like, she doesn't have to remarry. She doesn't have to, like, keep her purity in uh, a particular way in order to attract a marriage partner because she's done. She's already done it. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, that horse is bolted. So, widows are this really scary kind of prospect because it's like what happens when you can't control a woman financially and you can't control her sexually and as far as medieval people are concerned uh it's basically like cougar town 24 7 <laughs> uh, which you know god bless them i really hope it was happening to a certain extent because it seems like a really great time and i'm happy for those ladies if they made it happen yeah yeah mm. i mean don't just put yourself into a convent enjoy yourself exactly and you know of course those are kind of like the two ways and this is the weird thing about the expression of uh women's sexuality in the medieval period and especially what we've seen written down is it's like those are basically your two options either it's like all the way crazy just sex 24 7 for women or it's convent time <laughs> it's like pick a one so i mean it's the whole um in madonna whore complex writ large for a society you know yeah whereas you know for men like augustine or something you could do one and then the other I mean, and for women, that sort of exists if we're talking about, like, for example, paths to sainthood, right? Because there's essentially two ways. It's like you can either be royal, and then it's like you got a huge head start. Great <laughs> idea. Uh, be royal and be like, oh, I'm on a diet. And everyone is like, oh, man, this lady is a saint. That's pretty good. <laughs> or you, if you're, like, born poor, if you are a sex worker and then uh, do really well, see the error of your ways and give it up, then everyone is like, oh, man, this lady is a saint. So it's like that's the two ways into sainthood, too. It's like all the way sex time and then be like oh no it was actually very naughty or never sex time those are <laughs> those are the two modes you know that's right you need to repent at some point and definitely before you die because uh you know oh, yeah. you, you need to be doing that before you die but let's talk about sex workers for a minute because i think it is florence where they had actual licensed brothels to make sure that the young men of the town were not too fashionable and also not gay. So let's talk about sex workers for a bit. <laughs> oh yeah, sex workers are this really important thing in the medieval period. Uh, I mean, not that they aren't now, 
but um, they occupy a really different uh, sort of societal space. Because the idea behind sex work in the medieval period, and you can go to your man Augustine of Hippo on this, you can go to your man Thomas Aquinas, and they will tell you exactly the same thing, and that is that sex workers need to exist in the medieval period, because otherwise, dudes who are not married will get so horny that they will turn violent, and they will riot and basically turn like burn your city to the ground yeah. in, in a totally normal and chill way. Um <laughs> So, especially in cities, so like Florence, it's also um, all, all over the Holy Roman Empire. You'll see a lot of places, you know, Frauenhausen are oftentimes chartered by the city municipally. It's a big thing in Dijon. And also there are a lot of them uh, in London, uh, where I live. And they all kind of exist for two reasons, as you say. In Florence, it's like, got to make sure the guys don't go gay because, I mean, mm, and like I, I struggle even to use the word gay, even though these guys are clearly what we would call gay, but they don't have really that same concept. It's just kind of like, if you do gay sex, you're a person who does gay sex. You're not gay. They're, they're, they're weird. It's a whole kettle of fish to get into. Yes, let's get it back to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, we'll get back to it in a minute. So um, in, what you would do is you would make sure that there's these brothels. And so then dudes who are, are not married can go there and have sex. They won't start having sex with other dudes. And they won't get all like weird and violent and like burn the joint down. And so Thomas Aquinas calls brothels and that sort of a thing the cesspools that keep cities clean. And so that kind of tells you what you need to know. Because on one way you're like, oh, that's like very forward thinking of them that they accept sex work. And that's kind of cool. But it's still this really liminal place for the women who do it. So it's like, yeah, this definitely needs to exist. But it's still pretty sinful. Like if you die while you're a sex worker and you're unrepentant, then you're a sinner and you're probably going to end up in hell. But if you repent before you die, they're a lot cooler about it and there's a lot less stigma about it than like our society now has generally for example your repentance is just going to be like get married if you are still kind of young and you want to get married and you have a couple of kids the church is like oh job done there you go there's your penance if you're older you could join a number of orders like there's the order of the magdalens who are started specifically to take in ex-sex workers having said that by the end of the medieval period, they're pretty much just another order of nuns and it doesn't really have very much to do with that. But they're started specifically because there's this sort of demand where women, you know, especially, I mean, consider you've been living this lifestyle where you're sort of doing whatever you want, you make your own income. You might not want to rush into marriage. So, you know, maybe you can join a religious orders and kind of still have a little bit more say over what it is you're doing with your time. Yeah. And I think in a way it is sort of progressive in that they recognize that poverty was a way in which people might actually end up doing sex work. And I'm not sure that we recognize that um, association as much these days. So. Oh, yeah, definitely not. I mean, we tend to, our approach to um, sex work just tends to be much more about how it's a criminal element that we need to break down and a lot less about the understanding of how a society works and why this might exist, you know? Yeah. So many old people were actually ahead of the curve on some things. Gotta give them that. <laughs> yeah, they were in a lot of ways. But let's get back to the LGBTQ spectrum. People were definitely having sex that was not hetero, um, and they were definitely having relationships that weren't hetero. But oh, yeah. they didn't think of it in terms of the same labels that we do. Absolutely. So we've got scads of evidence for all of the extremely good LGBTQ times that are going on. And they actually survived to us in better numbers than like sometimes heterosexual sexy letters. Because a lot of times this happens within monastic uh, communities. So for example, we'll have like, you get these really cute love letters written from nuns to each other or monks to each other. And they're like, at once sort of like heartbreakingly sad, you know, they're writing each other these cute love letters. And they're also pretty racy. Like they get, <laughs> they get sexy at times. So there'll be nuns writing to each other about how much they miss each other and um, how they think about how the, the other nun 
kissed their little breasts and that sort of thing. And you're like, oh, okay, great. Go off, girl. And this sort of thing. So we definitely, definitely know that, I mean, even if we just didn't look around and see that people who were gay existed and they didn't come out of nowhere, we definitely have lots of records on this. But they don't think of themselves as gay in the way that we do now, where it's like, oh, well, this is an orientation and this is just what you're like. What they would just kind of be called is sodomites. And this is where things get really, really tricky in our records, because sodomy technically, I mean, now when we say sodomy, people tend to mean butt stuff, but sodomy does not mean butt stuff. (laughs) It means literally any kind of sex that can't get you pregnant. So again, manual sex, oral sex, frittage, anal sex, like all of all that stuff that is technically sodomy. And so literally anyone can be a sodomite. You could be married. You could be a married heterosexual person who has only ever had sex with their husband or wife. And if you are doing manual sex, that is it, like hand job one, you're a sodomite, it's over. But people who were what we would call gay were definitely sodomites because there's absolutely no way that the sex that they're having can ever be, you know, piv that gets you pregnant. So they're definitely, definitely sodomites. But then this also gets really tricky because especially, for example, in like Italian court records, the way sodomite gets thrown around is really different as well. So you'll see, for example, examples of what we would call gay men. And if you get found that you're having gay sex, then they'll say, okay, well, this is a fine. You've got to pay this many lira. Get found a second time. Okay, the fine goes up. It's this many lira and so on and so forth. I think it goes up. You get about five chances of increasing lira. And it's either the fifth or sixth time. Then they're like, okay, that is it. And they will kill you. So it's not even like they're saying that, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. It's sort of like, don't get caught. And there are all these chances to sort of reform your ways. The other confusing thing is that the term sodomite will often also be used to mean what we would call pedophiles. But the difference is, even though they're using the same term, they're saying this person is a pedophile. If you get found out and you're a pedophile, they will just kill you. There's no kind of like increasing anything. It's just like, no, that's not okay. We're not accepting that. We're putting you to death. So even though the same term is there, there's obviously a division within the medieval mind about, okay, well, these are not the same thing, but the term is still the same thing because fundamentally they're still doing sex that isn't the right kind of sex. So it can be difficult when we come through records because when you or I see the term sodomite, we might go, oh, gay stuff. And it's like, well, not necessarily. It might just be like anyone who's having sex just for a nice time, or it might be really terrible pedophiles. So we have to be super, super careful whenever we're using records to find out what people mean. Yeah, I think that's really, really important because we do have this idea that, you know, if you were what we now call gay, you are automatically sent to the stake. That is it. And really, mm-hmm. the fact that we have penitentials that cover, well, all sorts of very intimate acts, oh, <laughs> specifically, God, yeah. um, they have the capacity for what you know, they would think of as forgiveness. You can you can rectify that. You can fix it. You don't necessarily have to be labeled for the rest of your life, you can get that all sorted out between you and God and it's done. So they weren't necessarily as intolerant as we think, which I think is a really important point. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there is a huge capacity for medieval people for forgiveness. And that's actually what they're always angling for. They're always saying, hey, get right with God. And I mean, obviously, I disagree with them that you can be wrong with God for being gay. <laughs> But yes, um, for absolutely. Them, you know, it's not like a guiding principle. There's a really great article about this. Unfortunately, I'm forgetting his last name, but there's an excellent article um, that is called um, Homosexuality as a Threat to Medieval Study. Sorry, Heterosexuality 
important point, heterosexuality as a threat to medieval studies. Because heterosexuals now kind of tend to look at sex history and this sort of thing and assume, well, everybody's straight unless proven otherwise. But that's not how medieval people think about it. Medieval people tend to think about sex as a series of practices that you can pick up or put down and you can be forgiven for or not. Whereas now we kind of go, oh, people are fixed through this thing or the other. And that can be a really difficult time, especially for people in the queer community and especially, for example, for bisexual people. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you could you could have these different acts that you could perform and not necessarily be labeled as something permanently, I think is kind of kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> Mutability is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, because it's not it's not so clear cut. It's never been clear cut. It's not clear cut now. Somebody actually on Twitter wanted us to talk about kink. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not sure how much evidence we have on kink. I do remember coming across uh, it was probably in Ruth's book about um Katerina Hetzeldorfer and I think those two she and her lover were using a dildo made of red leather which I thought was fantastic. The fact that it was colored. Yeah, that's like a, an extra step forward. I mean I guess it also depends on how you think about kink, right? Because definitely we know, like, there's... So, for example, there's just a lot of dildos and strap-ons around the shop. Oh, um, yes. Let which, me be clear. Yeah. I wasn't thinking of this as kink, but I was thinking of sex toys, and that is cool. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And there's, like, so there's tons of sex toys, and they're really into it. They're really into dildos. We know they come up in penitentials all the time. It, it's this sort of thing we'll kind of... Um, and you'll also sort of see art that at, at times kind of, like, it indicates that women might be using this. The idea that dildos are around the place and that you might be using them on yourself or using them on other people, especially other women, big, big deal. And they love it. Stuff <laughs> that we're talking about kink, like S&M is kind of an interesting one. So there have been some good papers that are kind of like interesting, for example, on the concepts of um, we've got St. Agatha, who is one of the Sicilian saints. And she had, so she was kind of like Roman. She's not medieval. But one of the things that happens is that um, she is tortured for being a Christian because the Romans are still running Sicily. Uh, and one of her tortures when she refuses to marry a pagan prince, which was very much the style at the time, is that, she gets her breasts cut off but then i think it's saint peter visits her in her cell and magically grows her breasts back overnight um and it's like oh it's a miracle uh but a big and popular thing in the medieval period would have lots would be lots of pictures of saint agatha stripped to the waist and tied to a pole and there's kind of like the implements of like breast desecration like a kind of pointed at her but not on her like you don't see anything getting sliced off but it's like ooh, like you know a naked lady tied up and it's gonna hurt and there have been some arguments for that as a kind of kink or for example um saint sebastian a queer icon and hero who um was not killed by but suffered and lived through getting tied to a pole well a tree and um having a bunch of arrows shot at him and he's often tied up and he's got a bunch of arrows in him and he's usually looking rather handsome yes while he, he does it so there is a little bit of kind of like the ooh, sexy pain thing going on in those vibes. But we have a little bit less for that. We also have weird examples, I'm sure, uh, and Ruth has pointed, uh, Ruth Mazzocaris has uh, talked about this a million times. But we also have uh, gross examples, for example, like um, in the relationship between Abelard and Eloise, where Abelard will say that he kind of strikes Eloise and he hits her all the time. Uh, in front of other people while their relationship is still secret in order to kind of make it seem like they're not boning all the time. But he <laughs> makes references to that being as gentle as a caress or a kiss. So there is this kind of indication there 
that even though he's hitting her, it's this mm, romantic sort of a thing. I don't like to believe uh, Avalard because I feel he's not a reliable narrator. <laughs> but, you know, it, in his mind, there is a kind of dynamic going on where he sort of thinks he's uh, being kinky. But if he is, I would call him a bad dom. So that's, you know, my view on Avalard. Yeah, I think we could just leave it at that. <laughs> Avalard is a bad dom. <laughs> he's, he's a bad dom. But we're not, we're not coming across a lot of like S&M in court records and stuff, right? It's mostly focused on the actual activity they're involved in and not kind of the anything that's around that. Or have you come across yeah, it? Yeah, it's I have not. And, you know, God bless it. If anyone has seen it, uh, let your girl know because that, that's the sort of stuff that I'm down for. But I, I haven't really found it in court records at all. It's, you know, it will be in things like private diaries. You could, We can kind of like read Avalard as maybe being a little bit dommy. Um, we can kind of look at these particular hagiographies and go, hmm, that's a little bit kinky. It'll be things like that. But we don't see a whole lot of, you know, medieval people going, oh, yeah. And also, if you are uh, whipping each other in order for sexy times, that's 10 Hail Marys. That doesn't happen. So um, if, if anyone knows about it, though, do let a girl know because that would be amazing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we talked with Kat Tracy about torture. So you'd think that people would just be all over the torture when it comes to their sex lives, too. But that is total myth. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, I think that it, it, it is a good thing for us to keep in mind, because a lot of the time when we think about medieval people, we tend to think of them as like these quite violent people who are like prone to torture and prone to these things. And it's like, mm, well, I mean, I'm not here to say that medieval society is totally peaceful and great, but they're not quite as into using it for um, the interesting sexy times that, you know, we kind of jump to in our own conclusions. And this is something that you have shown in your work more than once. People were so much more similar to us now than we ever give them credit for and that means inside the bedroom and outside of it oh yeah absolutely i mean they're kind of like us but in some ways turned up and in other ways turned down it's interesting what is uh muted and what is uh, cranked all the way up to 11 you know <laughs> yeah widows widows are cranked up to 11 oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> i mean you know and actually just having a, you heard you say that out loud you know we kind of have that concept of like older divorcees right like we yeah. think about like older women who are divorced, we're like, oh yeah, you know, that like we still sort of maintain that. Yeah, the fact that you have a word for that, the fact that you brought out the whole cougar thing. <laughs> it, yeah, it it's, like, it's kind thing. of the same thing, but not not necessarily a widow, but a lot of the time when you say cougar, we do think divorcee, you know, and that's like kind of the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for coming on the show, talking all about medieval well, sexuality. <laughs> always a pleasure, Danielle. Um, I'm just so excited to be here and thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.